Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The temple, which is the center of you know, Jewish life, has now been taken over by Antiochus. He's made it into a, you know, a temple of Zeus. So, you know, Yahweh isn't being worshipped in the God of Israel. None of that, none of that's happening. And if you try to do that, you will be killed. And so that gives you a sense of how desperate the situation is. 200 years before Christ, a Greek king who called himself God Manifest took over and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, igniting the Maccabean revolt. The story is bloody and also miraculous. It explains how we got Hanukkah, why there's bad blood between Jews and Samaritans in the New Testament. It's also the first book of the Bible to deal with prayers for the dead and with purgatory. It's got Alexander the Great and instructions for getting your war elephant drunk before battle. Walking us through this amazing book is Professor Matthew Thomas and his wife, Leanne. They are both Hebrew scholars, and they edited it together for Ignatius Press on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Sardinius, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions, and they get to share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email. Matthew Thomas and Leanne Thomas are my guests today. This is Matthew Thomas's fourth appearance on the show. He is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology Department Chair at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology here in Berkeley, California. He and Leanne met in graduate school. Oh, they're married. I should say that. (laughs) He and Leanne (laughs) met in graduate school studying ancient Hebrew together, and they annotated and commented on the first and second books of Maccabees for the Ignatian Study Bible. So welcome, Matthew and Leanne. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be able to be back here with you. I didn't even realize it was our, our fourth time doing this. Fourth so, time in a year and a half. Yeah. So was that, that a was that a date when you said like, hey, you want to go out for Maccabees rather than boba tea or coffee? You know what? <laughs> so this, you know, I think we had already been married for a while when the uh, the Maccabees project came up, <laughs> but it this did end up functionally taking a lot of our date time. And so <laughs> find babysitting so we can go to the coffee shop together and uh you know be able to to work on on writing and and researching which honestly for something like this is great because you know if you ever had a chance to you know write a larger project like this um it can be really daunting and really exhausting and so uh you know being able to do it together and uh yeah have it as a has a date date opportunity uh was pretty excellent it's pretty impressive. I think I, my wife and I, we can't even clean the same room at the same time. We have to take different rooms so that we, because I'm so slow and she's so methodical and everything like that. I just, I just solve that by not cleaning the rooms. Uh, <laughs> um, so I usually ask for a joke, but I understand you have a funny story from your travels. 
Well, I don't know if it's a funny story. If there is anything funny going on, it's that uh, our our two youngest kids are in the other room, uh, and we've currently hypnotized them by watching the Mario movie, and uh, which we're hoping is going to be successful. But they could break in here at any moment and completely uh, disrupt everything that we're doing. So we have that going on. We also yesterday, uh, so we're we're on a road trip for a gosh close to a month actually. So. Um, the Catholic Biblical Association had its meeting in Omaha um, last month. And so we we drove out to, to Omaha of all places and we're there for a while. And then uh, we're down in Mississippi for about 10 days or have, have some family. And then uh, drove, drove to Florida over to Pensacola because we heard the beaches over there are really nice, which they are. They were so much nicer than our beaches. And then uh, we literally we just we just got back uh, last night around like eight. And so uh, this is. This is the first thing that we have now now done and recovering from, uh, you know, a big big trip there. But you guys look good. You 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 make it. I should the listeners won't know, but we can see each other on Zoom. But the the podcast, of course, is audio. <laughs> and how is uh, Mississippi in the summertime? Is uh, is it warm? How would you describe it? <laughs> it was very warm. Yeah, <laughs> the whole trip was really warm. Yeah, yeah. It's I would say what's interesting is you get varying kinds of warmth in that. You go to you know, Mississippi, and that can be, I mean, the humidity there can be so significant that it, you go outside and you kind of feel like you're swimming. And so there's there's that. And then we went from that to the desert because we were staying with my aunt in Phoenix. And um, I mean, that was that was a totally different. It's just, you know, you're putting your head inside of an oven. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, various, you know, flavors of, of warmth. Yeah. W okay. Well, so... Um... Interesting, interesting books. Would you like to introduce the books of Maccabees first and second? How did you choose them? How was it working on them together? What's the process? And then we can talk about uh, the content. Yeah, totally. Um, maybe what I'll do is I'll say some stuff and you can throw it in again. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, um, yeah, so I think that, you know, Leanne and I are pretty unlikely, you know, candidates to do uh you know, do something on Maccabees because we didn't grow up knowing anything about Maccabees. We, you know, didn't grow up as Catholics and so didn't have these in our Bible or anything like that. And honestly, it was a, it was a huge surprise to be asked to work on these. Uh, what had first happened, just as some backstory, was uh, I came across the Ignatius Study Bible first, uh, the New Testament, when I was working for St. Patrick's in, uh, in Menlo Park. And uh, I came across it gosh, this thing is awesome. They're doing really, really good stuff with this. And so I had sent um, Mark Brumley over to Ignatius an email just out of the blue saying, uh, hey, what you guys are doing here is fantastic. If you guys need any help with anything with this, let, let me know. I'd be glad to be a part of it. Um, and he's like, great, thanks. Uh, don't, you know, don't hand it back. It doesn't go anywhere. And fast forward, we end up living in Steubenville for, uh, for a year, for the next academic year. And they go and they show me to my office and I'm sharing this office with this guy named Curtis Mitch. I'm thinking, Curtis Mitch, cool. I don't may have heard that name. I don't really know who it is. And so we're, you know, getting around talking. It turns out he's the principal guy who is doing the notes for the Ignatius Study Bible. So it's he, he and Scott Hunter are doing this together. But, you know, Curtis is really, you know, the main, main engine for this stuff. And so it was this really funny providential thing where we just ended up, you know, being in this same spot as the folks who are who are working on this this, um, this project and 
uh, one of the needs that they had was, uh, you know, in order to be able to get the full Bible completed, they they needed folks to work on on first and second Maccabees. They still didn't have the notes for those yet. And so um, we, you know, just as we got to know Scott and Curtis better, I think they you know, recognize would be a good fit for the project. And so they asked me originally if I would be willing to do, uh, you know, do the, the commentary stuff for it. And, you know, thought about it and, and Leanne and I talked and said, really, the only way that I'd be willing to do this would be if, you know, my wife and I could do it together because she, uh, you know, her, you know, her master's degree is in Old Testament. And there's a certain stuff that she knows better than I do. And I can, you know, do the research and writing stuff like that. But my primary areas are, are New Testament and patristics. And so, well, I, you know, I taught on Maccabees before I taught Old, Old Testament. She just had the kind of expertise that I I wasn't going to be able to be, you know, to provide in the same kind of way. But we figured you put us together and it, it's, there's a chance to turn out half decent. So we uh, so they said, yeah, that's great. So I, of course, had no idea what I was getting us, getting us into by making this proposal. Uh, but over the next. How long? Year and a half? Almost two years? Yeah, I think year and a half. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was about a year and a half. This is really the main thing that we were, you know, working on uh, full time is, is uh, researching and writing for uh, for first and second Maccabees. And so, again, initially, as far as, you know, why Maccabees, there wasn't anything. We didn't, we didn't know anything about this. But I think as, uh, as we've uh, just, you know, gone on and, and spent all this time in it, um, I think both of us have just had such an appreciation for the importance of these books and i think when you look to the early church and you know looking at the early church fathers and the appreciation they have for these books i feel like in you know us being able to spend tons of time with these texts i now feel like of the same kind of kin and like spirit with them where it's like these books are awesome and they're so helpful and there's there really are ways in which they're just just indispensable and so i feel grateful just to be in that position of like these are, mm-hmm. these books are so, are so good. And so uh, being able to share, you know, some of the insights and stuff that we've come across over, you know, these, these years and in, in, in reading uh, writing has been, uh, has been really, really great. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for that. <laughs> no, I think that covered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you asked the great question, why Maccabees? And um, I, uh, you know, the preface is written by Scott Hahn, which is a pretty pretty famous name. And he makes the point that we Catholics and the Orthodox Christians also have it in our canon, but the Jews do not. Somehow such an important Jewish text has not made it into the into the Tanakh. And uh, maybe you could start by, uh, when, when, when I knew we were going to talk about it, I started reading this back in June, and I was uh, at, at scout camp with my 10-year-old son. Um, and I was just, you know, the kids are running around and I'm sitting under a tree reading a book all week. It's pretty awesome. But every time somebody said, what are you reading? I was like, well, I'm reading the Bible. Did you know that Alexander the Great was in the Bible? Because I had no idea about it. So uh, would you uh, um, set up the the Hellenistic world we we are in here around the second century before Christ? What's going on? Yeah, Yeah, totally. So if you're just thinking big picture, one of the things that is great with first and second Maccabees is that it's a sort of connective tissue between the old testament and the new testament um in that you know if you if you're just reading uh you know your kind of standard niv and it ends with malachi 
and then you know you're in the fourth century bc and you open up you know and you get to the gospel of matthew you jump forward four centuries and it's not the same world there's a lot that's happened in between and there's a lot of things that are frankly kind of mysterious in the sense that you don't really know how these things have gotten to be the way that they are and um one of the things that you know first and second Maccabees is is great with is in um in kind of filling in the context as far as what's happened between you know malachi and by the time you get to you know the, the times of christ and the apostles so that you can understand when you read in the new testament oh this is why you have these you know these figures doing what they're doing this is why you have these tensions say you know between jews and gentiles you know why is it that you know the idea of you know making a covenant with the gentiles or god showing you know favor to the gentiles why does it provoke these what seem to be really extreme reactions from you know those who are the hearers of jesus and paul what what's going on there why would that happen or if you're thinking in terms of uh it's, it's you know it's a commonplace to say that the you know the jews were looking for some kind of military leader as the messiah well that's great but why why would they be why, why are they thinking in those in those terms clearly yeah. those aren't the only terms that you can be thinking of and and so this is where the you know the books of first and second maccabees are so helpful to set the stage for what is going on within the world of the new testament and in a sense provides the, the backstory i think both um you know historically but then also theologically because mm -hmm. there's still you know theological I don't, I don't know if development is the best word um there's things that you might be you, you can say are perhaps more implicit in the old testament prior to first and second maccabees which then when you get to you know like say you're in second maccabees six and seven with all the talk about resurrection you don't even know if you're in an old testament or a new testament book at that point so it kind of bridges the gap um if you're thinking historically what's happened is you have alexander the great who goes and you know takes over and uh was that you know late through hundreds here uh it's because we're in bc we say late and early you don't really know how to how to do that <laughs> uh because because the way you know the way the, the numbers are working because you're counting counting backwards but uh he you know takes over the whole world and then dies and then yeah. you have his successors who have these so uh, so tell us are the late 300s closer to 300 or closer to 200 closer to three oh sorry closer was it to 300 or 200? Is this a trick question? Uh, <laughs> they're closer to 300 than to 400. Okay. So the so, late 300s are before the early 300s. Uh, oh, boy. This is a trick question. Yeah. This is, this is uh, stump the biblical scholar to see if he can do math. Uh, so if we're thinking what his, uh, his, is it 323 when he dies? I can't that remember. That sounds right. That sounds right. Um, it's, 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 it's one of those. So yeah. first Maccabees begins with Alexander the Great with his his conquest, you know, the world, which is, you know, I mean, one of the things that's actually really interesting is the earliest historical attestation that we have to Alexander the Great is actually in first Maccabees wow. uh, at, of any of any historical book. So yeah. not only does he show up here, he's, he's the earliest sort of witness that we have to who this, who this figure was. And so he takes over everything. You have his successors uh, who go and divide up the empire into these four quadrants. And then they're always going and fighting amongst each other from a Jewish standpoint. Some of these are better than others, but this is how you originally get 
the Greek influence, which has now taken over within, you know, ancient, ancient, you know, Judea and Palestine. So even that, you know, basic question of like, why is it that the New Testament is written in Greek? Like that seems yes, strange. Exactly. They're Jews. What are they doing speaking yeah. Greek? Why, 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 why aren't they doing Hebrew? That seems strange. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it goes back to Alexander the Great. It goes back to this, to this period and the influence of Hellenistic culture. And so um, you have some, some good ones uh, as far as, as far as the successors of, of Alexander's. And then you have the Jews being, you know, caught between the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid dynasties, which are again, two of those successors of Alexander. Uh, some good rulers, some bad rulers. Uh, Antiochus fourth Epiphanes, very bad ruler, uh, <laughs> very bad guy, and does a lot of really, really bad things. And so that is the, you know, the backstory for what's happening in first and second Maccabees. Uh, so taking place here we're 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 a ways into you know the successors so we're dealing around in the 160s bc mm -hmm. and uh which is really great as in a sense a kind of midpoint for if you got malachi on one side the new testament on the other this is almost kind of right in the in the middle which is really helpful for bridging the world between uh between those two contexts yeah, right. So the 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 one sixties BC is exactly two hundred years before the crucifixion, or close to it, maybe not exactly. And I love the world that exactly as you're describing. I love the fact that there are war elephants, right, that tell us that Alexander made it all the way to India. I like. I love that you have to get your elephants drunk before you send them into battle, because who would have known yeah. that? I would not have known that had I not read that in the Bible. That that's yeah. how you get elephants to go, you know, trample. Humans. Yeah. I love the diplomacy with Sparta and with Rome and the port of Joppa or Jaffa, which is established by, by Simon uh, Maccabeus. That's the, that's the main uh, port in the medieval and early modern times when you go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which wow. is the his, history I read. You know, when, when somebody in 1506 gets on a boat in Venice, they're going to get off at that port. Wow. And then I'm reading this book that, that you, you guys uh, edited. And I'm like, ah, that's when he made it, you know, because there's yeah. not a good port there on the coast. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's full of lots of helpful information. Again, if you're trying to figure out how to get your elephant to attack your neighbors. Exactly. <laughs> just open open the good book. It's in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so um, Antiochus, uh, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. What did he do? And why did it cause so much trouble? Yeah, so... I don't think it's unfair to characterize him as a big jerk. <laughs> I feel like that's like, there's not many people who would, you know, who would dis dispute that. Um, and if you're thinking in terms of, you know, hubris, even just, you know, epiphanies, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a little word study we have. Um, and I want to say it's in the second Maccabees, which looks at the, uh, the play on words that you have within second Maccabees, which looks at, you know, epiphanies, which is, you know, uh, the, the manifestation in that uh, you have um, Antiochus describing himself as God manifests. So that's why he gives himself this this name, which you see, pretty humble guy. Um, <laughs> and then that contrasted in Second Maccabees with what are these actual real epiphanies? So these real manifestations where 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 God sends these heavenly visions and you know, all this kind of stuff. And so you have the one who's claiming to be God on earth. Uh, and that's contrasted with the true manifestations that God makes in response to the pride and the, the hubris of this figure. And so 
Um, you know, basically what he does is he is uh, the person who's, you know, in charge of the uh, the Seleucid Empire, which is, you know, has its seat up in, in Syria, up in, in, uh, in Antioch, uh, but then it is now taken over, you know, Jerusalem as well. Some of those Seleucid leaders, Jews get along with him fine. And so his his dad had gone and sent, you know, money for the temple sacrifices and things like that. And so that doesn't seem to have been a bad relationship. Um, Antiochus has a much different way of thinking, you know, this is how I'm going to govern. And so what he wants to do is he wants to unify everything. So his whole empire under basically one culture, which means that the Jews who are not Greeks, they're going to have to become good Greeks in order to, you know, survive in his empire. Well, what does that mean practically? This means that, you know, the temple to, you know, Yahweh in Jerusalem, uh, this is now going to become a temple of Zeus. And uh, you're going to be worshiping Zeus there. You're going to be doing all the fun things that, you know, Greeks do. I'm sure from a Greek standpoint, they go to their temples and they have these big, crazy, just nuts parties. And, you know, they, I'm sure him visiting. They, they get drunk and have sex at their they, parties. That is, that is what they <laughs> do in their temple, uh, which... Uh, that only happens on really, really, really bad days. <laughs> and that's never a good a good sign. So you might say um, the character of their gods is really quite different in the sense yeah. that, you know, the Jews are saying, hey, this God is the one true God. He is, you know, he's perfect light, perfect holiness, etc. You worship him by imitating him in his in his goodness. Um, and, you know, by contrast, I if, if there is somebody in human history who has said that Zeus is perfect light and perfect goodness, they're <laughs> yet to be located. Um, that, that, that is uh, everything that we know about Zeus is he's a lot of things and he's not those. And so uh, part of the challenge is you know, if you're looking at this historically, um, Antiochus, you spreads, we're all going to do this. We're all going to be under, under this, this kind of Greek you know, system of culture. Um, you've got, the Samaritans who seem to have been amenable to this. So you have Mount Gerizim, you have the temple that's over there. Samaritans, you know, if you just go back, you know, biblically, uh, they're, they're mixed blood in that you have the people who were put there by the Assyrian empire who are living there. And uh, when you, uh, it's, you know, it's actually kind of interesting because this gives you some context for why there's so much animosity um, in the Gospels between the Jews and the Samaritans. So Antiochus goes to the Samaritans and say, hey, we want to rename your, your temple, you know, Zeus, friend of strangers. How does that sound? And they're like, yeah, it sounds great. Let's have a party. And so they have a party. And so Antiochus isn't thinking there's going to be a huge problem. He goes up to Jerusalem. Like, hey, so we, we got a new temple of Zeus up here too. We, what do you guys think? What should we name it? What, what kind of, you know, Zeus name should we give it here? And uh, they're not really interested in that. They don't really want to go <laughs> that and Antiochus being God manifests on earth doesn't really like being disagreed with and so that's where the conflict uh comes about and you have Antiochus uh if you just read first Maccabees one basically outlawing the you know the Torah outlawing the temple sacrifices you have a span of a few years where uh the temple doesn't function uh, besides as a, as a temple to Zeus and then those who do continue to obey the Torah, so whether, you know, in circumcision or whatever ha happens happens to be, 
um, he has them killed in some very, very grisly ways, uh, which I'll, I'll save it for uh, those who are going, going to read, read the book itself. And so that is the context in which God raises up the, the Hasmonean family, um, the main character, which is Judas Maccabeus. And so the, the name Maccabees is derived from that, that nickname of Judas. Yeah, the abomination of desolation, I think. Yeah. That phrase gets kind of thrown around quite a bit. And so you actually get that in um, the books of the Maccabees. So, and th that's from Daniel too, right? Something. Yeah. So you kind of, yeah, that's, this is the, the historical record of it. Um, okay. So the holy spaces are profaned. The rituals are uh, polluted. There's a gymnasium built somewhere. There's yep. all kinds of, uh, kosher is uh, punished. Right? Yep. People are forced to eat pig and, uh, uh, killed uh, in, as you say, grisly ways, uh, which, uh, you know, this book is not rated G. Um, and they, here come the Maccabees. Uh, who are they? Maccabeus means hammer. Is that right? Yeah. To the best of our knowledge, I mean, that, that ends it. It's a, it's one of those kind of speculative things, uh, but that is the name or the, the interpretation of, of, you know, Maccabee that ends up getting getting passed down as the most common one. And so um, when you're reading through the books, you'll find uh, there is, um, so so Mattathias, his, uh, his father, uh, is basically, he's in, in a village, Modin, which is outside of Jerusalem. And they come up and he's supposed to go and participate in these sacrifices as well. So hey, go and, you know, sacrifice to these, you know, made up Greek gods who do all kinds of naughty things. And he he's not going along with it, and instead he goes and he starts a rebellion uh, against this, and it's his sons who end up leading the charge uh, because he's you know he's he's an elder, and so he's not necessarily at that point going to be a big military leader. But his sons go and take up this this cause, um, and trying to I mean you're you're at a point where you know in Modin outside of Jerusalem, the temple which is the center of you know Jewish life has now been taken over by Antiochus. He's made it into a, you know, a temple of Zeus. So, you know, Yahweh isn't being worshiped in the God of Israel. None of that, none of that's happening. And if you try to do that, you will be killed. And so that gives you a sense of how desperate the situation is. And, um, and I think also an appreciation for, you know, there's a, there's a good bit of violence in, in Maccabees. And it's not unwarranted violence. Uh, these aren't these aren't just sort of uh, kind of rebel leaders who are just looking around and trying to pick a fight with the Greeks, um, which is I think it, you know important in the context. Uh, it really is the the Jewish way of life had effectively ended. It had, it, it had ceased and had been 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 uh, been outlawed at this point. And so um, the story that you get in first and the second Maccabees told in, you know in two slightly different genres is the story of Judas and then his brothers uh, basically delivering the people, uh, which is interesting because it is, um, you know, from a political standpoint, this ends up being a situation where uh, Israel goes from being this, you know, basically inconsequential little vassal within the, the Seleucid Empire to being their own independent you know, state uh, such that and they become so successful and powerful that 
you know, the Spartans, the Romans, uh, you know, there's actual real treaties that are going on between these these other, you know, important uh, you know, states elsewhere uh, within within the ancient world of this period. And so uh, if you're thinking in terms of, again, why would why would first century Jews be wanting to have a, a, a political messiah, political empire? Well, I mean, in some ways, it, you could say there's there's is partially justified in that they have within their own living memory judas his brother is going and actually doing this and restoring the uh the the nation to boundaries that you know this is the closest that they've been since you know the time of david really and so um it's understandable that uh you know the way that a lot of people could have sort of jumped to the conclusion that, you know, when God raises up Israel as a light to the nations, it is going to be, you know, it's going to be like a hammer, basically. <laughs> so that's a really good point. And explains the the interest in a military messiah and the zealots. Uh, the Roman emperor is also a living God. And they all go really crazy, obviously, Nero and Caligula, but Tiberius was a pretty indulgent and colorful fellow during the time of Jesus and you just have to read a little bit about what kind of things they did and as soon as people rely on their own appetites as a guiding star things get bad fast uh, yep. what what do you what do you what do you think Leanne what are the big takeaways about about that about the madness of human gods or you know Greek polytheistic gods who have such human characteristics and and the the naughty ones, as as uh, Matthew said gently, uh, versus the the great God Yahweh. Yeah, it's easy to forget. I think that when uh, I often am just over here, Matt telling stories to our kids sometimes about like these Roman emperors or Greek emperors. It's like right, that's right. They weren't great. <laughs> so there's a few interesting things. I think it, we can't finish today without talking about Hanukkah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm so much more interested in Hanukkah after reading this. Yeah, uh, what's Hanukkah about? So Hanukkah, it, you know, it's interesting. You you kind of have to stop and maybe distinguish what you have historically within First and Second Maccabees, um, and then uh, the story as it's told within later rabbinic tradition. Which it, I mean, it's interesting how how much how much later that 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 shows up. And that's not to uh, necessarily posit, you know, an either or like, you know, either you go for this traditional interpretation or you go for the historical interpretation. Um, I'm, there's some people who want to go down that road. I'm, I'm not I'm not one of them. That's not what I'm what I'm trying to do. Um, but it is it's important to, you know, distinguish that, you know, what you have within the first and second Maccabees is early and pertains really to uh, this, the particular events of when they got the temple back. Um, and then, you know, later on within the rabbinic tradition, you have, uh, you know, it's, you know, the, the story about the lights, the oil that's, that's, that's preserved, et cetera. And that stuff really does show up a lot later historically. Um, now, does that mean that, you know, by virtue of that fact that, oh, it's later, so it must not be as reliable. Again, I'm, I'm not a person that's going to go there in the sense that I, I just think that's, that's unfair to say that that's you know, be, because it only shows up late, therefore somebody must have, must have made it, made it up. It's just we just don't have that within within first and second Maccabees. Is not what it's talking about. What it is talking about is 
what happens when Judas and his brothers actually, against all odds, take this temple back? Because the Seleucid Empire was not an empire that anybody messed with. Uh, and if you were a tiny little vassal, uh, the chances of you uh, successfully taking this empire on uh, were somewhere around zero. It's not mm -hmm. that uh, had any likelihood of success. And again, you know, miraculously by God's providence, uh, Judas and his brothers do lead this rebellion where they're able to take back the temple. And so once they take back the temple, the question is, well, what the heck do we do now? Because you have this temple, which has been desecrated. Yeah. So the altar has been desecrated. It's been, you know, there were like, they, they you know, for, for years, it's just yeah. been nonstop bacon, um, you know, within the, within, the, within the temple. And so what do you, what do you, what do you do with this altar? What do you do with all these, you know, the stuff that's around here? And, and so it's interesting because they, you know, if you look in first Maccabees four, where one place this is talked about, they, they honestly, they, they don't know exactly what they're supposed to do. And they kind of take the old altar and they take the old stones and they put it away. And they say, we're just going to put these over here until a prophet is going to come and tell us what to do because we just genuinely don't know how to do this. What they do end up en enacting is a, a rededication and purification of the temple so that they, um, you know, they, they take everything that was messed up and make new versions of it. And they celebrate this with what is uh, gets called in Maccabees, uh, basically a new version of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which they're celebrating along these lines because as with the Feast of Tabernacles, everyone's been outside of Jerusalem. Nobody's actually been within their, you know, their own homes. They're forced to be out in these hiding places in the desert. And so they end up celebrating this big feast along the same kinds of lines. Um, what happens, and, if, and you see this attested uh, in the beginning of 2nd Maccabees in these two letters that we have that are sent out, what happens is, uh, you know, Judas and everybody say, hey, this is what's happened. Here's the great deliverance that, that God has given us. And, you know, we want you to celebrate the Feast of Booths in the month of, month of Kislev. And so this is great. It gets sent out to the Jews and Alexander and all over the place. And you're thinking, it's oh, kind of interesting because this is not a feast that shows up in the Torah. So your mm -hmm. main three pilgrimage feasts, uh, they're all in the Torah. Maccabees is not in the Torah. It doesn't, doesn't show, show up there. But what Judas and, you know, the Jews and Spirit are saying is God has delivered us in a way that is parallel to how God has delivered us in all these, you know, other extremely unlikely situations as well. And it seems that the only real appropriate response is to mark this with a feast too. And what's interesting is that it seems like people really agree. And so this, this, the, the feast of, of, of dedication or re, a rededication, um, where we really see evidence of this is in John 10, because Jesus living up in Galilee goes down to Jerusalem for John, for John 10, it's for the feast of rededication. So this is the, the, the feast of Hanukkah. And so it seems as though within first century, you know, uh, you know, Judea, Palestine, that this actually did really function and came to be a, a pilgrimage feast where, you know, observant Jews from throughout, you know, whether you're in Alexandria, which is where the, the letter in second Maccabees is written, or whether you're up in Galilee, like Jesus was, it seems that people who were adhering to the God of Israel did actually take it like this, which is why Jesus is down in, you know, in, yeah. in Jerusalem. And that's where you get his, you know, his teaching on how it is that he 
it, you know, this is one of the, one of the names for it is, is, is the, is the festival of lights. And that's yeah. the context in which Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And so you can see already there that, Oh yeah. The, what Jesus is saying, the context is for it is only intelligible. If you know what this feast of, you know, the lights is, and you only have that sense if you, you know, if you know what the, uh, you know, the Maccabean re rededication is about. That's so beautiful. And I bet you 99% of the Christians who read and Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the temple, for the rededication feast. Are they not thinking he's, you know, celebrating Hanukkah? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and I, I love that you put that in context of, of the Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the restoration of the temple in, you know, in three days. And all of that, all of those show us a way to restore uh, our own lives. You know, we, Catholics have reconciliation. That's such a big deal. Just the um, horrible violation that happened to this temple, and the fact that they could they found a way to to restore it, uh, is very beautiful to me. And I don't mean to be critical, but I know that the Jews today are very careful about where they step because they're afraid they might step where the temple used to be in that in the in innermost sanctuary. So they only have the the one wall that they know, like okay, I can go up to this wall, but I don't want to go over there. Muslims can go there, Christians can go there, but Jews are very careful that they are, you know, not trespassing that way um and and here 2000 years ago they had a way to to do that you know yeah i mean one of the things i think is is you know is, is cool is if we're just thinking in terms of you know christ's own practice it, it seems that in his own practice the what happened within the events of you know the, the maccabean revolt and then the restoration of the temple was significant enough that he goes down from galilee to jerusalem to mark this and then bases his own preaching on this uh, such that, you know, this is here, you have this, this festival of lights. Well, this as good as this is, it finds its fulfillment as, you know, all of Israel scripture do ultimately in him, um, ultimately mm -hmm. in his presence um, and in, in his person. And so I think it's a good way to, for, for, you know, for us as later Christian readers to have an appreciation for what takes place within these books and within this period, because it seems as though this is something that you know Jesus himself has as well. Two more things are here that you point out. One is we have the beginnings of a theology of purgatory and praying for the intercession of the dead, which appears in Second Maccabees 12 and in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 1032. This is such a central doctrine these days, but it's only 2,000 years old. Uh, you want to walk us through that? Yeah, I mean the I have you know one of the essays in there talks about you know uh, the canon of scripture and why is that Protestant and Catholic slash Orthodox you know Bibles are different? Why do you have a different canon in the Old Testament? And you really could just give as an answer. Second Maccabees 12, because <laughs> the second Maccabees 12 <laughs> wasn't there. Uh, frankly, I think that the rest of the material that you have within, you know, the, the broader Old Testament canon, you know, historically didn't tend among, you know, the early Protestant reformers to provoke the kind of reaction that it did. But the theology of purgatory is so clear within second Maccabees 12 that it was basically undeniable. And from a standpoint, if you put yourself in, you know, Martin Luther's shoes, he is in a war against the, you know, the authority of the church and the authority of the church to, to forgive sins. And 
this war really the, the battlefield is purgatory can you say masses can you uh can you grant indulgences can you give money for this that and the other in a way that is going to have some effect for the souls in purgatory or that can grant the, the remission of sins for those those in purgatory so that's that's where the, the you know the battlefield of this is and if you're thinking in terms of a theology of purgatory you know there's a number of places that you end up having deriving this from Really, the most explicit one is 2 Maccabees 12, um, because in 2 Maccabees 12, you have Judas Maccabeus and his army uh, who they're going to fighting. And strangely enough, some of the soldiers, you know, die, like actually a, a fair number of them. And uh, they're surprised by this because usually, you know, God's with the army. They just have all these great successes. And then they're looking at this one and like, oh, boy, like all these guys are dead. What's what's going on here? And they look at their bodies and they have these like sort of pagan talismans that they're wearing, those those who have died. And they recognize they've died in what seems to be a kind of state of, you know, syncretism of, or, or, you know, some, some, some kind of, uh, you know, moral imperfection here by not having the full adherence that was that was you know, required to, you know, to, to, to the true God. And but on the other side, it's like they also gave their lives actually fighting this battle for the for the true god and so you find yourself in a sense kind of you know if you're judas in the army in this kind of really moral gray area what do you what do you do uh because our, our buddies are dead they seem to have done something wrong but they're also doing something right and we know when they gave, gave their lives and so what they decide to do is they decide to take up a collection to offer sacrifices in the temple in jerusalem on behalf of their fallen brethren and the text says you know, it was a good and pious thing that Judas did because he did this in view of the resurrection. So it's because Judas Maccabeus and his his army knew about the resurrection of the dead, and he because they they knew that their you know their brethren who had, who had fallen were going to be raised by God again. Because of that, they knew that their sacrifices that you know that they may have their, their behalf that they go and they you know they, they pay for from their own money that these were going to have some kind of effect. Um, you can kind of from that you can you, you can kind of just get all the basic elements that you have of a you know a theology of of postmortem per you know purgation, and so um, it ends up again from a standpoint of. Um, you know, the first 1500 years of the church, because the idea of, you know, post-mortem purgation, because the idea of the, you know, the prayers of those who are, you know, still here alive on earth, the, the idea that, you know, our, our prayers can have an effect for those who are in a state of purification, you know, who, who have died, um, and because, you know, if there's a real community of the saints, we're, we're still, we're still connected, um, you know, to them because we are all in Christ, whether you're on this side of the mortal coil or that side of the mortal coil, mm -hmm. um, we're all still, you know, united in, in Christ and we can still, you know, pray and intercede for one another. Um, because the church's practice of this is, you know, so common and, uh, and, and universal, um, what you get in the second Matthew 12 doesn't occasion any, any controversy, um, it's really in the 16th century when the authority of the church to forgive sins is really called into question due to some of the abuses that are going on in that period, which I mean, fair play, there's real abuses going on. People <laughs> aren't making those things up. 
it's only when those abuses you know get to a really serious point that you have then the theology of purgatory and then second maccabees uh uh you know called into question along along with it and so it's interesting from the standpoint of you know a catholic standpoint those abuses were really recognized and, and you can see in the council of trent um even though the, the theology of you know of, of of giving money for sacrifices for the dead even though that's that's affirmed from a practical standpoint after the council of trent you're not allowed to give money like that anymore mm-hmm. just because the abuses had become so widespread just from a practical standpoint it really was was causing scandal and so uh you you, you see even the trent doesn't kind of go to the, the lutheran extreme and cutting out you know this book and then you know, you know, the other, uh, you know, deuterocanonical books as well, there is still really serious measures that are taken to make sure that the principle that you see articulated in Second Maccabees doesn't get ended up taken to, uh, I guess you could say, un- unfortunate conclusions. So here, I think you're, you're really touching on a super interesting tension, uh, which is the consequences for sin and the compromise of purity, uh, Jewish purity with Hellenistic worldly practices. Um, and we are, we talked a bit about the defilement of the temple um, in the first book. Um, I wonder if you think this is a problem for Christians today. I, for one, tend to be a little more compromising and ecumenical than some of the more traditional Catholics, uh, and certainly my maternal grandmother. You know, we disagreed on what was allowed and was not allowed. You can go on Twitter. You can say people arguing about something Pope Francis said or some, you know, image he incorporated or uh, he could wear, you know, a, a, a feather hat given to him by Canadian natives, things like that. Like, and people argue passionately how much of everything in the world belongs to God and how much of it is, uh, you know, my way or the highway kind of, kind of a a religion. And so we talked about a bit about that in the, in the Jewish context. What do you think about that in the Christian context? Do you have a feeling about that as you teach your, you know, students? Yeah. Do you, do you want to know if uh, Pope Francis can wear the feather hat or not? Yeah, I think he can, but <laughs> I can give you judgment on that if you want me to. I can, uh, I can, I can give the judgment of the Holy Father's, you know, fashion choices, etc. I'm sure that's, I'm sure I'm well qualified for that. Uh, you know, I, I maybe one thing I, I would say, and you can really, this, this is valuable. Uh, I think from a standpoint, we really can learn this um, from from books of Maccabees. And it applies really well throughout church history, and it applies really well today as well. Um, the people who I think can most successfully do, and you might say, uh, do outreach to other cultures, do all these things, and find these points of contact, and can incorporate what is good within those cultures, are those who are the most unquestionably faithful to what it is that God has entrusted us with. And so what's really interesting is if you look at, you know, Judas and his brothers, they're the ones that are the most unquestionably faithful to what it is that, you know, God has has, has given. They're the ones that are actually, you know, putting their lives on, on the line for this stuff. And so nobody's going to think, oh, that Judas, he's such a, he's just such a liberal. He just goes and he probably has a funny hat, doesn't he? Um, he, he, he is unquestionably faithful to what it is that God has given. But what's interesting is because of that, because you have that you know, so well demonstrated, he is then in a way able to you to find these points of contact culturally 
with these people who are, you know, like the Romans, the Spartans, he is the one who is successfully able to go and to make these connections, which really, you know, prove to be, you know, enduring, you know, connections now under Pompeii, the stuff with Romans goes, you know, goes south, of course. Uh, but it's because he is the one who is the most unquestionably, you know, faithful and orthodox. He really can lead the people in helping them see, no, there is true good over here. There is true good over here. And we're not compromising what it is that God has called us to by, you know, by reaching out, by affirming these other, you know, goods elsewhere. Um, I think you can see it, this is probably going to be uh, maybe the first time, uh, probably the first time uh, this week for you that somebody has uh, has uh, has compared Judas Maccabeus and Thomas Aquinas. But uh, they're actually, <laughs> in this respect, there is a there's a, there's a good comparison because um, if you look at at Aquinas, um, as far as being rooted in Scripture and being rooted in the fathers, um, there's almost no one like him as far as how encyclopedic his knowledge of both scripture and you know, its history of interpretation of the fathers is. Uh, he, he, you're not going to find somebody more faithful than, than him. It's precisely because of that fidelity that he is able to look at Aristotle and say, man, there's some really good stuff in Aristotle. And actually, there's certain things in Aristotle that are more helpful than ways that we've been talking about these kinds of things for 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 quite a bit. And it's precisely the guy mm -hmm. who is orthodox, who is in a lasting way able to establish these points of contact to really bring in the insights from Aristotle. Yeah. And and you know, which is, you know, from from the standpoint of the history of the church and the history of the world, is hugely significant. Uh, yeah. has a huge impact. And so from my standpoint, I guess I can say I I don't think that um, I don't th think that scripture commends to us either the posture of just holding to this kind of rigid orthodoxy where you just sort of, you know, you build your little cave and here's here's my cave of orthodoxy and we're never leaving, leaving the cave of orthodoxy. Um, nor do I think it commends to us the posture of uh, let's just, you know, collect a bunch of funny hats and, you know, yeah. they're all they're all kind of good, et cetera, uh, which that's not. <laughs> because i don't even know about whatever the, the holy father's uh hat collection and like that so <laughs> uh, i couldn't i couldn't i can't give any any commentary on that but yeah. um it, it i don't think that scripture commends to us either you know with judas's example or, or or elsewhere um you know either of those postures either the the hide in the cave orthodoxy or the hey let's just kind of you know yeah. it's all good and you know let's you know just kind of mix and match combine stuff i i don't think that as far as um, being able to, well, maybe, maybe say it positively, um, in order to be able to actually make these points of contacts in a way that is going to be lasting and is going to benefit more than just ourselves individually, but is really going to you know benefit the church and the faith at large, uh, it really requires that depth of knowledge and rootedness within one's own tradition to make that work. So you, 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 need, you, need, you need both. That's a beautiful, beautiful answer. Leanna, you want to add to it? She just gives me all this stuff and then I go and restate what she says. Yeah. Okay. Well, and um, I, I, I love it. it. It makes sense. It's, you know, same thing with Paul or John the Evangelist using Theos and Logos to, to help us understand how to think about God in, in Greek terms that didn't exist before that. You have a lovely essay in this book about how 
Jews in the Old Testament, how they understood death and life after death. Uh, and you have a funny line where if you're trying to describe something that's completely alien to somebody else, you wouldn't say like, what's a dinosaur? Well, a dinosaur is kind of like a stegosaurus. That doesn't help anybody if you're telling me like, okay, so this new thing is like a stegosaurus. Okay, I, I'm still lost. And I think the, you know, the Greek influence and you, you point out in your book, uh, you guys that uh, Jews were, you know, had a, had a lot of Egyptian uh, influence and all the Egyptians ever think about is the afterlife. Would you like to take us through the, your, your summary of how did, and maybe even how do Jews to this day think about life after death and how this changed, especially in these last two centuries before Christ. And then everything that Jesus told us, you know, all the ideas I have about the afterlife come out of the come out of the gospel and then how the Christians were able to articulate that over centuries and centuries and centuries of Holy Spirit infused discussion and debate. Um, how did how did we get from the Old Testament to where we are today as far as understanding life, life, eternal life? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, just kind of thinking through these, these, these questions. Um, I, um, I also really was hoping to find a way to incorporate stegosaurus in <laughs> commentary. So I'm really glad that you, you appreciated that because it's not, it's not easy to do to find room for a, a, a stegosaurus in there. So, um, <laughs> but just to explain what you, you know, what you're, what you're talking about there, um, you have within the Old Testament, there's a number of places where life after death shows up um, and, and the ideas of resurrection show, show up. And so if you take Ezekiel, for instance, and, you know, the Valley of Dry Bones and how, you know, all these people are dead and then the bones show up and then, you know, God says, hey, so son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, I don't know. <laughs> Who do you think I am? I don't know. And, so, and then it turns out they come, they come back alive. And you have similar stuff, uh, you know, in Isaiah. And uh, and what's often said is that, you know, this is this idea of, you know, resurrection, what you're seeing here, you know, in the Old Testament. Um, this is an analogy for the idea of, you know, national restoration, that when Israel is restored, it's going to be like physical resurrection. And I think that that's right. I think that that is, that's correct. But there's a sense in which this almost tells too much because you can only say that if physical resurrection is itself intelligible as a category to its audience. And so I guess, you know, as I was saying in, in the commentary, um, you can only use an analogy to go into take something that is known and to use that known thing to explain an unknown term. And so uh, physical resurrection, it, it, it doesn't work as an analogy if there's not some concept of it already in the time of Ezekiel and in the, in the time of Isaiah. And then once you recognize that, then there's a number of other places that you you know, look in the old Testament, you know, you know, Job is, is one where you think, Gosh, it seems as though there's some kind of concept of post-mortem existence here. Um, or if you think of, you know, Samuel and Saul and the witch of Endor and how Samuel is actually there and you're thinking, okay, well, evidently being, you know, you know, gathered to his fathers doesn't mean that he just ceases to exist because here he is, he's back again. He's wearing the same, you know, same cloak and he's telling Saul, what did I tell you about going to the witch of Endor? I said, don't do that. Uh, and so uh, it's really hard, I think, 
um, you know, if you really think about it, to close the door on the idea of, um, you know, there being an afterlife within the Old Testament. It's it's one of those things that is, is sometimes thrown out, out there as a, you know, there's no there's no real conception of the afterlife in the Old Testament and in the New Testament with the resurrection of Christ suddenly that goes and springs up. That just that doesn't really work with the with the details. Um, I mean, it's especially problematized if you have Second Maccabees within uh, your your Old Testament because Second Maccabees uh, it's talking about the resurrection everywhere so just all over the place and so and maybe a good way of saying it is that what is often implicit or suggested within the text of the old testament elsewhere um becomes very explicit by the time you get to second maccabees and that it's not just talked about it is what drives the narrative so if you're looking in you know second maccabees six and seven so the mother and her seven sons which is really difficult passage to read but really really beautiful in that you have this mother who and, and her seven sons who are, are basically all give their lives uh to uh to be sacrificed instead of eating pork and the sacrifice is such i think saint gregory of nazianzus uh, identifies this woman as even greater than abraham because mm. abraham wanting to give up isaac she gives up all seven of her sons and gives her own her own life as well and from the standpoint of the narrative of second maccabees it's this sacrifice that's that that that, that that's made this this in a sense this self sacrifice for God and willingness to 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 die for His laws. This ends up being what turns away God's wrath from Israel. It's from there's it's it's this really interesting kind of almost you know substitutionary atonement that that you get from these figures. And the reason that they're able to do this, and it's interesting in the speeches they make before Antiochus. The reason that they can give their lives up for God is because of the resurrection. It's because they know that God is going to bring them back and is going to, you know, give them life from the dead. And that is, in a sense, the guarantee for how it is that they can choose to obey God rather than men. And so um, it's one of the things, If again, if you're reading the Church Fathers, it's one of the reasons they love Second Maccabees because, yeah. you know, they, they see here you know how great are these guys even before christ you know incarnation yeah. you know in a sense just before it but here you you can see uh before the incarnation has even happened uh the power of the resurrection just the knowledge of the resurrection how that enables an obedience which um you know is, is otherwise impossible uh so that's a bit of what you what you get in second maccabees and again as far as connective tissue it yeah. helps so much for seeing how, you know, when you get to the New Testament, you know, everybody's talking about the resurrection, you know, yeah. you know, when, when, uh, if you think, you know, Mary and Martha and Jesus, Lazarus dies and, you know, Jesus shows up and says, I'm the resurrection of life. And yeah, well, great. Well, we know Lazarus is going to, is going to be raised at the last day. Well, how do you know he's going to be raised at the last day? Well, if you've read second Maccabees, it's really helpful to get a sense of, oh, this is how by this point really what was maybe implicit in scripture elsewhere has become explicit, much more common by Christ sometime. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And that clearly they've been talking about this all along for the centuries, for the centuries and listening to the Holy Spirit and developing this theology. But here we just happen because we have this text to be able to shine a flashlight on it for a moment and see it, see the change in, in, in the still and it also helps us understand why Jesus might have chosen 
the moment he chose because people were ready for that. And the the Greek world allowed the gospel to be spread uh, in all directions. And uh, what else have we forgotten to ask? Leanne, do you have anything that you wish? Yeah, the only thing I would say is like, if, if you're not going to read both books of the Maccabees after listening to this podcast too, make sure you at least read Second Maccabees 7 and just read the the accounts of the, the martyrs because I think you'll be shocked <laughs> that this is in... Uh, this is happening in this way at that period of time. You'll just, it feels like you're reading like accounts of early Christian martyrs, except that this is before. So just, yeah, their, their belief in the, in the resurrection is just super clear. Yeah. That's such a good point. I hope everybody does that. I, I think earlier this year, there were 23 martyrs, uh, somewhere in the Mediterranean, I think they're Lebanese and maybe a Nigerian man who were killed by the Islamic jihadists. And because of this, everything's for social media, they got, you know, they've recorded their, their last words and the last words were like, well, you know, I'm happy to die for God. Uh, so 2000 years later, uh, here, here we are. And then like that mother and her seven sons in, in second Maccabees is, is that, is that again? Yeah. 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 Dear friends, thank you so much. Uh, I forgot to say uh, that we, uh, to, for our listeners, that sometimes when when I'm when I'm lucky, I happen to go to the church at the same time as this um, family, and we go to the Dominican Priory here uh, in in Oakland, St. Albert's, and um, they have so many beautiful kids. I don't know how many beautiful kids do you have. <laughs> we have no idea. Who knows? A lot. And uh, there was one little fellow who was wearing this T-shirt with like a tie. Uh, on it you know like the the fake <laughs> suit on a t-shirt it was so is adorable um, yeah. so a, a lovelier a lovelier couple and a lovelier family you will you will not meet thank you so much for being part of almost good catholics would you like to close uh, with a blessing and a prayer for our listeners yeah i would I would love to pray in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen father we give you thanks for the hope of the resurrection that you have placed within our hearts so that we know that with everything that you place before us, that we can be fully obedient to you, knowing that you will restore anything that is lost and that in your kingdom, there is nothing that is lost that you will not give back and that which, which will not actually stand for all time. And so we pray um, and ask that you will grant us in full measure uh, the power of your spirit so that we can live in this hope of the resurrection so that your kingdom can come through our lives more fully and so that we can more closely and uh, more clearly show uh, the light that you desire to give uh, to us uh, through our lives to people around us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross be born for me Chris Odinitz and Matthew and Leanne Thomas recorded this conversation, episode 69, on Wednesday, August 9th, 2023, the feast day of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, born Edith Stein in 1891 in Poland to a Jewish family. A teenage agnostic, Edith became a nurse during World War I, later earned a PhD in philosophy and converted to Catholicism after reading the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. She joined a Carmelite nunnery in Holland and later took the name Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. 
Her sister also joined as a tertiary. She was murdered by the Nazis in Auschwitz, but was canonized in 1997 after a little girl in Boston was healed miraculously after her parents prayed for her intercession 10 years earlier. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, and their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain, and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. I can go through and edit it. And if my dog starts barking or if I sneeze in the middle of a question, we can always can change <laughs> yeah. that. Or if, our, or if our children start barking. If your children start barking, that actually might you know, be a delight for the listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. Uh, welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation.